I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. In the Echoes podcast this week, David Helpling takes us inside his album called In. It's a double CD journey of electronic orchestrations that will send you inside your own head and out into space. And speaking of space, it's a sad week here at Echoes. We lost a titan of electronic music and one of the reasons Echoes and the Echoes podcast even exist. Klaus Schulze, who is one of the creators of the space music and Berlin School of Sequencer-Driven Sounds, left the planet on April 26. He was 74 years old. I'll bring you our mini-documentary on Klaus that we originally put together for his 60th birthday, and then I added in some more for his 30 Icons of Echoes feature. Klaus Schulze is the seventh icon. Paul Schulte and David Helping Ahead. As I mentioned, Echoes and the Echoes podcast would not be here without Klaus Schulze. He was the spark. You know what else is the spark? You, the listeners to Echoes and the podcast. Your support is one of the ways we keep going. And if we don't keep going, who else is going to play the music of artists like Klaus Schulze and David Helpling? Who else is going to cover it? So go to the Echoes website at echoes.org and click the Support Echoes tab. That's echoes.org. And now let's enter the fantasies of David Helpling. David Helpling is a guitarist, an electronic musician, and someone with a keen ear for sonic detail and musical orchestrations in an electronic world. He's just released his fifth solo album since his 1996 debut, Between Green and Blue. David Helping is a working musician, but he is not the most prolific as a recording artist. He has five proper solo releases and three collaborations with John Jenkins. But he's obviously been saving up a lot because he's just put out a double CD and LP called In with 90 minutes of music. You'd think I would have just released some of it, but um, no, it was really important for it to be a big, rich, kind of a greatest hits feeling release and all the tracks were asking for that every track is an anthem there's no ambient stuff on in I'm speaking to David Helpling through the Riverside FM app. He's in his home studio outside of San Diego. He's bald with a manicured goatee, but looking much more welcoming than some of his menacing press photos. He's framed on one side by a wall of hanging electric guitars and basses, and on the other side by electronic keyboards. They're all bathed in a purple light. This is where he spent the pandemic working on In. I spent a lot of time in here by myself, 
making music, and in was made all by myself, 100%, until I brought in a couple of guest artists, but they were not here in the space. I'm pretty cool hanging out with my synthesizers and Charlie the Studio Cat and making records and being in a fantasy world half the time. While his last album, Rune, sounded like it emerged from the claustrophobia of pandemic isolation, In sounds like it's bursting out to the skies. Yeah, Rune does sound like a behind-closed-doors depressed album, but it's also really inspired. Um, but I, I was working on finishing all of In during the pandemic. But it was a, a massive drive to make it the biggest sounding record I've ever done. Although he says there's nothing ambient on this album, there is definitely a lot of ambience. Technically, this is the deepest ambient, most ambient piece of art I've ever created. There is more ambient guitar textures and new things I've never done before on this record than ever before. They just happen to be woven around melodies and percussion and crescendos and giant sounds. But a lot of the tracks that start with textural ambience are all guitars, like four layers of guitar things. And then that becomes my stage to write melody and progression and let the synths come in and, and all that stuff. David Helpling's In has its roots in the digital synthesizer sound of his 1999 album, Sleeping at the Edge of the World. That's on purpose because a lot of these ideas were started right after sleeping. This was going to be my third album. But instead of doing that, John Jenkins and I had an explosive thing in the studio and we just kept running with it. You know, 10 years later, I'm like, okay, let's get back to it. But there are very specific sounds and instruments and treatments on in that are directly from sleeping on the edge of the world. Same DNA. title in has two meanings the one that david puts out there is this i do a lot of uh, macro photos with my phone and a special lens and i am much more impressed and much more likely to spend time in very very tiny landscapes than staring at the vast expanse of the mountains and all that stuff and i am much more impressed with tiny things very tiny things tiny landscapes things that people step on, things that people never even notice. And the way the light reflects through a blade of grass with a water droplet on it, and there's this tiny little 
spider walking up a bit, and there's a rock, and, you know, these are all scenes to me, and they're magical. But there's more to it than that. This is an inner journey full of philosophical musings, sci-fi fantasies, and surreal imagery. On the song This Burning Sky, he creates a dark tale of heroism, the story carried by the wordless vocals of Hindi singer Nidhi Bhatmuli. It's about a being that sacrifices herself to save her world, and her world is in ruin. Who ruined it doesn't matter. And so the parts of the song go through that. And it was important for me to play out this very cinematic, very dramatic, very dark story. And at the end, she sacrifices herself and she saves the planet, but she's gone. So powerful stuff. I want to provide a place for people to go that has an epic story in it. And if that story happens to be about, you know, the natural world and this supreme being saving it, you know, it's very sci-fi. You know this. These explanations to songs aren't overt. David has the gift to the poet, and many of the meanings of his songs are left to the listener. Even Miriam Stockley, who sang vocals on two tracks, didn't know what every one of them meant. Miriam was the voice of the group Praise and of Adi Amos in the 1990s, and she's part of the World Fusion Project AO Music in the 21st century. She sings on the song, slipping a suitably ambiguous title until David explains it. Slipping doesn't mean anything, but it sounded like I was slipping between keys, sounded like I was slipping between states, sounded like I was slipping into a drug trip, which that song is kind of about. Whoa. Okay, he definitely didn't tell me that. (laughs) Miriam Stockley. Right, I can see him in a completely different light now. (laughs) The song starts with a granular guitar texture. And it had these random moments of waves of sound that came in really loud, like And that whole feeling of this slowly fading in atmosphere, and then these kind of little flashes of things coming to you, and then the piece would change, and then vocals would come in, and then it got all ethnic and Eastern. And we went into a completely different mode. It felt like the music was changing state. It could be whatever you are, but I think that that whole track is very kind of psychedelic to me. Um, And the way that Miriam is in all of the four movements of the track, and she's kind of the siren, and she's teasing you, and I think it's very magical and colorful, and I think it could lend itself to that kind of state change that can happen. Stockley was a little better informed about the closing track of the album, I Too Am Coming Home.
He mentioned things about luminous beauty of, of dying and returning to the source and pure love and all that stuff. You know, because one's got to get in, immersed into that to kind of understand where he's coming from. It's very, very personal to him. It's about dying. Pretty clear. I think it's right there in the music. I think if you don't even know the name of the song and you listen to the track, the whole thing starts out as this hymn and it repeats and repeats and gets bigger and bigger and then these gates open up and it explodes and Miriam's singing and there's sounds everywhere and, and these super verby digital synthesizers and guitar wails everywhere. Yeah, it's basically about dying. I didn't want to make it morose. You know, I wanted to still try and make it beautiful because death should be beautiful and it should not be anything ugly or you know, and into fear. So I just went with what he sent me. So he sent me a backing track and once again, he said, look, it's an open canvas. Just do what you think is right, but just bear this in mind. So that beauty of dying, um, I just had it in the back of my mind and just sang with as much emotion as I possibly could. David Helping's compositions on In could be the score to your wildest sci-fi film. Take the track, Bending Towards the Night. Bending Towards the Night, if you want to know what I think it's about, it's about an intimate encounter between two beings. And if you listen to the song from the beginning, and how it is alluring and looking at you from across the vista and drawing you closer and things get more interesting and they get more and more intense. If you look at that song from the very beginning to the end, it's a continuous build to the end and there's a big climax. So to me, it's about an interfacing of two beings that starts flirtatiously from across an alien landscape and, and then they join and it becomes an explosive. David Helping doesn't wear his fantasies on his sleeve. He's not like David Arkenstone with his Tolkien-esque orchestrations and garb, or Enya with her evocations of Ireland's myths. There are no liner notes telling his tales. Even the evocative cover images of purple-hued water drops on a feather by macro photographer Brant Campbell tell a story of mystery and wonder more than any specific fantasy. This album of instrumentals and wordless vocals are all it takes to create David's world. These are little fantasy scenes, and every track on end is a fantasy, and I want it to be for the listener. And I think uh, when you hear it, you sort of get that. David Halpling's Inn will take you on a 90-minute trip through 13 songs, each a story and soundscape of its own. 
It's out on Spotted Peccary Music. I will have a link for David Helpling's in on the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. And now we remember Klaus Schulze. I still recall the first time I heard him. I was on the air at WXPN in Philadelphia spinning on Diaspar, their progressive music show back then. A friend of a friend, David Gelly, came in with a batch of import albums, and one of them was Klaus Schulze's 1975 release, picture music. I put it on and played an entire side and saw my music world open to new vistas. When we got his 1976 album, Moon Dawn, I was again blown away, and I have still never seen the phone lines light up the way they did that night. During the 1980s nuclear war scare, I had a dream that my friends and I were sitting around trying to figure out what we'd pick for the last music we listened to before we were all, you know, blown up. We landed on Klaus Schultz's Mirage. Now Klaus, who has been part of my life for some 45 years, he's gone. Here's an extended feature we did for Klaus's 60th birthday, to which I added newer material for his induction as the 7th of 30 Icons of Echoes. Klaus Schulz's music was mixed in a crucible of technology, science fiction, and the tail end of 60s psychedelia. West Berlin was a center for new electronic music. Tangerine Dream, Ashra Temple, Popo Vu, and Agitation Free with Michael Hernig all emerged in the early 70s. Schulze was a drummer when he joined Tangerine Dream and played on their first album, Electronic Meditation. However, it was anything but meditative. Klaus Schulze. But the thing with Tangent Dream in the beginning, it was the same step, but it, because it was just like a punch, like around everything is away. We have to do something new, very aggressive, you know, like punk. It was, from my point of view, uh, earliest and uh, electronic meditation are the punk electronic albums, you know. Tangerine Dream founder Edgar Froza remembers that they were trying to break away from the influence of American and British rock and roll to find their own sound. We had uh, over there in Germany, we had no roots in rock and roll. We could not compare our talent in rock and roll in any way with American musicians, even not with English musicians. So what we had to do is to step away from that, try to move through the back door into a sort of um, different aspects of explaining ourselves through music, you know. And so we uh, realized, okay, what, what we've got, what's our heritage in music? That's classical music and a growing part of technologies. And we haven't done anything else than combining new technologies with the roots of classical music. That's what we did. The Germans became known as the Cosmic Couriers after Ulrich Kaiser, the owner of Orr Records, recorded a series of psychedelic jam session albums like Galactic Supermarket and Cosmic Jokers. Uh, it was a very strange thing, actually, because the uh, producer at this time, uh, Ulrich Kaiser, um, 
I hit a special, I hit a big cosmic sinking and, um, and um, was taking a lot of trips at this time and, uh, and she said it's not enough that we are just doing our albums, we have to be a cosmic family, you know, a cosmic chorus who brings a, uh, a message all over the world and to the universe and all that stuff. And uh, so he rented a studio, which uh, he rented just, I think, for four weeks constantly. And um, we all went in there, and uh, we were obliged to take a trip. It was the entrance, and the entrance was a pot with trips filled up. So everybody uh, took his trip, and then there was all people together, part of Tangent Dream, Purple Vu, Ashra, myself, and uh, it, it was signs of the time what we had at this time, you know. But uh, you can't take it serious musically, you know. It's, but uh, as a joke, I accept it, you know. Schulze soon switched to keyboards, and in 1972 and 73, he made the experimental drone albums Ehrlicht and Cyborg. But his first major statement was Time Wind in 1975. It was a sweeping work with only two 30-minute compositions. Its expansive themes and rhythmic pulse were made possible by the use of sequencers, devices that generated ostinato patterns with unerring perfection. Time Wind uh, was, for, for my point of view, was the most classical electronic album I did, you know. It was the first time that you could have a, a strong rhythm without having a band or with have, having a... I mean, uh, no bass player could play these things for that. He would have went crazy after five minutes at least, you know. And that was new also, you know. And, uh, and it got its own power, this kind of monotonous, hypnotic and also psychedelic feeling. Schulte's watershed recording that defined his style for years to come. Many musicians have become more popular borrowing his techniques and imagery, but Schulze remains one of the most distinctive voices in electronic music. To his fans, he's the Mozart of synthesizers, and despite his rock background, Klaus Schulze still likens his music to classical form and structure. I just did the music I liked, you know, and um the reception and the, the way of listening to it is somehow classical, but the composition system is totally not classic. Uh, but uh, let's say the surface looks uh, classic because long pieces, it has uh, a very soft, not aggressive sound, like uh, there's no real heavy metal guitar in it or whatever. And that's similar to classical music, you know. But I was never really aware that I'm creating this kind of uh, classical feeling because for me it was just a nice music which I liked.
Klaus Schulze's music exists outside of traditional boundaries. His compositions have a classical sense of time, exploring moods and feelings that have become associated with the new age. Uh, what I spoke to people that when they come home from work or they're really stressed or they don't feel well, they sit down or lie down and just listen to the music and then start dreaming, you know, have their own fantasy going, you know. Schultz's atmospheric compositions have affected a generation of musicians. The cover of his 1975 album, Time Wind, occupied a prominent spot in the Los Angeles recording studio of synthesist Steve Roach. The first album I heard was Time Wind. And the first time I heard it, it was just a, the uh, classic mystical experience that uh, is sometimes related to uh, you know, a drug experience or some kind of near-death experience or some kind of extreme uh, shift of the paradigm, so to speak. And that album really just happened to be at the right time. And I happened to be at the right time, the right place, heard it. Things connected very, very deeply. The popular Japanese New Age musician, Kitaro, was introduced to Schulze when he produced an album by Kitaro's early group, the Far East Family Band. Speaking through his translator, Kitaro recalls Schultz's impact. More than actual uh, the, the specifics of uh, what uh, Klaus did with the instrument, it was it was his whole approach to the instrument. Uh, Klaus's personality is almost uh, uh, has a childlike quality, and that that uh, led to a very fresh approach to the use of the synthesizer. It was. It was, it was using the, the instruments and other equipment in the studio in ways which were uh, totally unconventional. For example, he would take tracks that he had built up to a certain point, play them through a Leslie cabinet, mic the cabinet, and remix that into the, into the overall thing. You know, things like that uh, uh, were, were quite unique, he felt, and uh, influential. He was really funny. He played his mellotron and uh, he didn't know anything about synthesizer, you know. He had a small cork synthesizer and uh, so I explained a lot to him, you know, and we have a lot of talking, you know. Schulze did more than turn Kitaro and others onto synthesizers. He plugged into a spirit of musical adventure and search that has suffused the best of New Age and space music. Again, Steve Roach. Klaus, for me, certainly was the icon of, of the synth hero. I mean, the solo artist, you know, with the whole sort of image he projected in when I was younger. And I know that he projected to so many um, of the synthesis who were, who were affected by his music and by him as an individual in the way that he would present himself on the covers. And the whole aura about him was very, um, very attractive to someone who was looking, you know, for a new direction. And I mean, Klaus, just, the, he represented a, a, a real lot in that way, I think. You know, it's a real mysterious quality to it.
These musicians were attracted to Schultz's sense of time and space, and the hypnotic quality of his repeating sequencer patterns. He likes long compositions, and looks upon them as if he were building a piece, atom by atom. I think my kind of music was always a music which uh, you start to listen to it and then you, uh, you have a feeling of being relaxed or seeing a mental movie. And uh, this, I think this demands a certain uh, amount of uh, minutes to come in, then in, to enjoy it and uh, finally to go out uh, it. And if you have too many breaks or what they say, segments, uh, you, you cannot concentrate on one thing what you like you would like to concentrate on you know because if the mood is changing like a ping pong you know i think the feeling is very near also to classical feeling klaus schultz's music has always been invested with a science fiction aura his early cover art used drawings by oris amann depicting aliens with streamlined limbs living in Dali-esque landscapes. Deeply influenced by the late science fiction author Frank Herbert and his epic novel, Dune, Schultze tried to recreate the airy spaces and mystic philosophies of that novel through sound. He had been commissioned to write the score for the Dune film before it changed directors. But even before that, he'd recorded his own Dune album and a tribute to Frank Herbert on the album 10. Dune was, I think, the most impressive work for me, which I ever read on science fiction, you know. And there are some other bits, Stanislav Lem or Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, but this was, I think, the most impressive. It's like a Bible, in fact, if you want to see it like that, you know. And um, so I just want to express some of, of my feelings which has nothing to do with the meaning of that, uh, of the Dune work from Frank Herbert, but uh, it deals with my understanding, my reception of this book. Like the characters in Dune, who became addicted to the opiatic spice of the planet Arrakis, Schultze also found his own addictions. In 1983, the pressures of traveling on the road and running a record company combined in a cocaine and alcohol problem. You know, I took everything, tablets, pills, uh, coke, and whiskey, and every, whatever you had there. But uh, there was a damn rotten time, you know. And the, the problem was that you woke up in the morning and um, you were really through the tablets. You were sleepy, then you put the first line, you were really on, and then uh, you drink something, and then the concert came, you took another line, not one, some more. And uh, this was Ryan as the same, we both did that, you know. And uh, then you were really on and you, you wanted to sleep, you know, so you took a pill to sleep, you know, the stupid circle, you know. The effects on his music were as deadening as his earlier use of hallucinogens was liberating. The alcohol put me in a situation that I became more rocky, you know, more rock and roll heavy. 
I think, for example, heavy metal music, you know, is only pe for people who must be alcoholics, you know, because then it works. If you're really drunken and you listen to heavy metal, it's nice, you know. And uh, because it's just a standard, because the rest of, uh, of the head just closes, you know, and just the one and the, the screaming that comes through uh, your brain, the rest is just filtered out by the alcohol, you know. And that's probably affected also my music. They started to do heavy drum things, you know. Schulze has since spent time in a clinic and claims to have overcome his cocaine problem. Even at his lowest ebb, there was a spirit in Schulze's music that could not be suppressed. Michael Shreve, who played drums with Santana and made several records with Schulze, says that Schulze shares an enthusiasm for music that is matched by few people and compares him in spirit to John Coltrane and Miles Davis. For one thing, he gets something going, he gets the sequences going, and he starts jamming on top of it. So in that sense, yeah. And he's very free, you know, and childlike in the actual performance. Laughs, calls the the, you know, stereo sequences, my babies, you know, I mean, really, it's very close to them. Everything's very personal with the instruments even, not just the music, you know. I mean, everybody knows, you know, that Klaus loves his music, but that's no different than any, uh, any other great musician that I know. Klaus Schulze feels himself moving back into a more contemplative period. I think I will become more, in the real sense, of more classical. The music will be more, more quiet, more uh, calm, you know, more lovely actually in the moment, you know. And um, experimental, there will be also uh, very harmonic, soft pieces, and I think very going more again back to sounds, just to create sounds environments, you know. For Echoes, I'm Kimberly Haas. Klaus Schulze, his loss is still hitting me pretty hard. I haven't spoken to him since the late 1980s, but his music has remained part of my being. Klaus was nothing if not prolific, so if you want to jump in, I've got a list of five essential Klaus Schulze recordings in the posting for this podcast. It's at echoes.org. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next time, tonight, on the radio somewhere in the country or at Echoes Online, right now or whenever you want.